listening to For All the Saints, a ministry of All Saints Church, a community of faith on the campus of New Covenant Schools in Lynchburg, Virginia. I'm Jeremy Rowe. The Anglican way of faith and discipleship approaches our spiritual formation in a textured way. There is, of course, daily prayer directed by our prayer book. But there are also the disciplines of faith, such as works of charity, almsgiving, and fasting. Each week and on feast days, we celebrate the Eucharistic liturgy in which we become active participants in the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is also the weekly sermon, which is central to our life in Christ. Together with the sacrament of Holy Communion, the preaching of God's Word is the way we receive Christ and His gift of life. At All Saints, this ministry is shared by our ministers, Father Davidson Morse and Father John Heaton. In today's recording, we join Father John in progress. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the first Sunday in Christmastide, and if you're paying attention on Facebook, no doubt you have been reminded by one of your friends that today is 123123, and if you write that out in numbers, the last day of the civil year, this year it's 123123. How cool is that? You have to be on Facebook to find out things like that. The other thing I learned from Facebook this week was that there is an unusually high level of people getting married in Las Vegas on this day because they want the anniversary to be something unforgettable like 123123. I don't really know if that's true. I don't know if anything on Facebook is true, but I know it is 123123 and also the first Sunday after Christmas. I don't know about weddings in Las Vegas, but our text this morning is about a wedding, one that almost didn't happen. We know the story of the gospel lesson today very well, and our creed makes, it, makes us say it every week that we believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Ghost, and born of the Virgin Mary. We say that, and it's important if you're under age 20, you need to hear the church say baldly and boldly that we believe and profess that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost and, yes, was born of the Virgin Mary. But before we get to that in our text, let's remind ourselves that we have heard this story before. You will recall that when Abraham and Sarah were well past childbearing years, They were promised a son in their old age. We know how that went. Their incredulity at the announcement was superseded only by their impatience. Abraham went ahead and had a child by a concubine. Yes, you can't make this stuff up. Her name was Hagar, and that issued in the birth of Ishmael, not the son of promise. And nevertheless, after that, Sarah conceived and bore a son when she was nearly 100 years old. Think about that, those of you who are, say, north of 60. And the writer of Hebrews quips, Abraham was as good as dead. How about that? 
But the story doesn't stop there. Abraham's son, Isaac, married a woman named Rebekah. She was young and beautiful, but guess what? She couldn't have children. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. When Isaac and Rebekah could not conceive, God intervened. They bore twins, Jacob and Esau. We know how that went. Those boys grew up and Jacob took to himself a wife and you know the sordid story. He had to work for seven years for a man named Laban who promised to give him Rachel for his wife, but because Rachel was the younger sister, he tricked him. And in those remarkable words of the Old Testament, unforgettable words, He went into what he thought was Rachel, and in the morning it says, Behold, it was Leah. Proof positive they drank like fish at weddings in the Old Testament. (laughs) He had to work another seven years, and Laban finally gives him Rachel. And Rachel could not have children. And it got ugly for a while. Because Leah had children, and again, you can't make this stuff up. We've got concubines, we've got multiple wives. These are our forefathers. And Rachel envied her sister Leah, and her anger was kindled. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. As if Jacob could make a difference here. And he got mad back and said, well, am I in the place of God who has withheld children from you. So they prayed, and when Jacob and Rachel could not conceive, eventually God intervened. And we know how that went. It has the feel of a never-ending, ever-repeating soap opera, and the family structures and arrangements reflect more of the polytheistic, pagan, Semitic cultures from which these people came rather than the model we see, for example, in the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. There's more. You'll have to scratch your head here. It may have been a long time since you read this, but way back there in the 13th chapter of the book of Judges, there was another man whose name was Manoah. And his wife is not even named, but guess what? She couldn't have children. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to this unnamed woman And said, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you will conceive and bear a son. And she did. Now, this is more obscure, but you know her famous son. His name was Samson. But that's not all. We know how that ended, too. There was another man, a man from an obscure place called Ramathium Zophim. You've heard of that? That's in the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah. Have you heard of him? Maybe not. He had not one but two wives. Here we go again. One was Penina, and she had children. And she lorded it over the second wife, whose name was Hannah, who was greatly disturbed by the taunting. Now, gentlemen, if you think it's hard to live with one wife, just think if you had two. One of whom was jealous of the other. This is all Old Testament stuff. We're not making it up. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. 
And when she couldn't conceive, she went to the tabernacle. There was no temple yet. And she prayed for a son whom she promised to dedicate to the service of God. And God heard the prayer. And you know the boy. His name was Samuel. And by the time he was three, he was living in the tabernacle with Eli, the old priest, who raised him as his own son. And we know how that went. But that's not all. There's more. Who could forget Elizabeth, the wife of the priest Zechariah, a faithful man who could not imagine that his wife would bear a son. And while he was on duty one day in the temple, an angel of God came to him and told him that that his wife in her old age was going to have a son. And his default setting, even as a priest, was disbelief. And for that, the angel said, well, you're not going to speak for nine months. Elizabeth probably enjoyed that. (laughs) He came out of the temple and motioned to everyone that he'd seen an angel and they thought it was some sort of vision. And nine months later, you know the son. His name was John, the one we call the Baptist. And we know how that worked out. The man who came to herald the way of the Lord and who charged a nation to make straight paths. The story of the patriarchs and that of Manoah and Hannah and Elizabeth tell us more than a story. It teaches us something about the redemptive work of God. The history of the very people through whom God chose to bring the Savior of the world is the history of mankind. We are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, but we, through the pernicious and pervasive effects of sin, are unfruitful unbelieving, old and dead, like Sarah or like Rachel, who was young and beautiful in face and form, but dead nonetheless. At pivotal moments in God's plan to advance His own purposes, to deliver His people, to save them from their historical enemies, and to save them from the consequences of their own sin, at those pivotal moments, God intervened in the human condition, supplying miracle babies through miracle births. And so far, we have counted six. Coincidence? I think not. Because the seventh son is going to be the greatest Maybe it's all coincidence, but I think that as the Scripture records the historical facts, it tells us what happened, it tells us exactly what happened, and it tells us exactly how it happened. And it is through these recorded details that in the fullness of time, God sent another deliverer, a seventh, that we would recognize by the strangeness of the details surrounding His birth. It would not be a story that we hadn't seen before. Compressed and considered together, these narratives at once take the shock out of the story. The stories of the heroes of the Old Testament have set us up to expect the miraculous. But God, at His shining best in the Old Testament, never went so far as to do what He did here. There is still some room for shock and amazement. And in the day of Mary and Joseph, there was shock. First, there was social shock in the community. Joseph was part of a religious community that valued marriage. Things had tightened up a little bit since the days of the patriarchs. 
Marriage, after all, was ordained of God for man's good. Marriage protects the community by identifying whose children are whose. Marriage establishes responsibility. Marriage is a public institution that declares where our commitments lie, or at least where they ought to lie. The passage is not really about marriage, but the story is told with these graphic details precisely because there is real tension in the story. As they say around the country in Bedford County, she got splaining to do. Christian faith and ethics have, from at least my generation as a child of the 60s, taken the criticism that Christians are squeamish about sex. So, oh, by the way, did I, this sermon is PG-13. It's okay, kids, you've seen PG-13 movies, we can handle this. It took the sexual revolution to make sex public, ubiquitous, open, and free. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that marriage, in the Christian sense, is not a private thing at all. It's a public thing. Marriage, in the Christian sense, declares publicly, yes, get this, who is sleeping with whom. And non-Christian views, the kind that have taken over our world, make sex public the way a butcher makes cows public. You look at a cow in the field and you say it's a cow. You go to Kroger and you've got to read a label to figure out what it is. And that's exactly the way our culture has approached sexuality. Chops it up, dices it up, and separates it from anything that is recognizable for what God intended. The world processes and divides it so profoundly from who we are that it's barely recognizable. The truth be told, sex is not public in our culture. The world privatizes sex by declaring nothing. Anyone is free to sleep with anyone... It's private and has been separated from its very public pedestal, which is marriage. Young people are told that it's nobody's business what you do. That's not true. We get married in public before witnesses, among other things, for the purpose of identifying ourselves as the parents of our children. Order the world that way, and pretty quickly, if you don't, order the world that way, very quickly you get a permanent underclass of unwanted or underfathered or unfathered or unmothered and certainly underprivileged children, many of whom become permanent wards of the state, and most of whom perpetuate the cycle from birth to birth to birth. You don't have to go very far in this town or any town across America to find this mind-numbing problem. Now, none of that is really the point of our gospel lesson today, I understand, but some of these things need to be said uh, in your hearing and in the hearing of our children. The shock of Jesus' conception was that it raised the collective eyebrows of the entire village, by the way, which was probably 1,500 to 2,000 people. That's about the size of the population of Rustburg, or Halifax, or Arrington. It's a small town. And most of the people in that town were related. And so when the news of Mary's pregnancy occurred, everybody knew. There were no secrets. And it was a shame. No doubt it provided gossip spoken through pursed lips as the onlookers all said something like, 
Oh, you know, she was such a nice girl. And on that young couple was heaped open shame. This was to be the burden and the difficulty of being the handmaiden of the Lord. Did Mary apprehend that when she was told by Gabriel, or she told Gabriel, be it unto me as the Lord has said? It is the burden of this important part of the Gospel of Matthew to shatter the shame. We get this open declaration in our Gospel this morning that says the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that is, engaged, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There you have it. There is a declarative quality to this statement. It is as straightforward and genuine as one could say it. Here's how it happened. She was found to be with child. And then the three words added, from the Holy Spirit. And how exactly do you prove this? Do you know that Mary and Joseph and Jesus never did live down the rumors? Much later in Jesus' ministry, you will recall that difficult scene in which they brought to Jesus a woman who had been taken in adultery. The text is careful to say, in the very act. But there was no man brought, just the woman. And this story is usually tortured with all kinds of interpretations when Jesus says, go and sin no more. Ultimately, we're taught in many cases that Jesus just forgives everything and it doesn't really matter. And if, unless you're perfect, you can't ever like make an accusation. Okay, that's not what the text is about. The text is, is about fatherhood. The text is about the missing father in the text. And we know that because the rest of the entire chapter is an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees about who his father is and about who their father is. Jesus says this, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said, where is your father? Wink, wink. One can just hear the sarcasm. The rumors about Jesus' birth were well known. And Jesus snaps back and says, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Skipping down several verses, they answered him and they said, well, Abraham is our father. Surely that best Jesus. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And the father in view here is someone else. He's going to say, you are children of the devil. The Pharisees got really nasty at this point. And listen to this throwaway remark that harkens all the way back to the circumstances of Jesus' birth. They looked Jesus in the eye as he stands there in the temple and they said this and they spit it out slowly. At least we're not born of fornication like you. We have one Father who is God. Now Jesus replied and said, if God were your Father, you'd love me for I came from God and I am here. I didn't come from my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And he goes on to say, 
that if I denied my own father, I'd be a liar like you. No sharper exchange ever existed in the New Testament between Jesus and those who were hostile to him. But in the midst of all of that, they throw up the circumstances of his birth and press the claim of illegitimacy. Now it cuts the other way too. When it was convenient, people believed something else. When Jesus' divinity was on full display at the feeding of the 5,000, the Jews incredulously asked, grumbling, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, what do you mean the bread that came down from heaven? Like manna? Like Moses? Well, that's what Jesus had said. And here's what they responded. They said, well, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother we know and whose father we know. He's just an ordinary guy. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we know this family. And here they seem to be unaware of the supernatural circumstances of Jesus' birth. But it's all a ruse to deny what Jesus really is. And as great as was the shock to the community, the greatest and most immediate impact was on the young groom-to-be. And this is the Sunday where we need to talk about Joseph. Fully within his rights, but sorrowful and full of regret, Joseph, who is called a just man, a righteous man, was moved to take the only path forward that he could take. He would divorce Mary. We read the story and we know the end, but all that Joseph knew was that... Here's what Joseph knew. Joseph knew that three months ago, Mary went to visit Elizabeth, her relative. And when she returned, she was pregnant. That's what Joseph knew. Joseph had not been visited by an angel. Joseph was not kept in the loop and on the same page. Joseph knew nothing of the kind. As far as he knew, Mary had gone away and something had happened. Matthew presents this to us very clearly, but very bluntly with few details. The fact is, Joseph was not expecting a virgin birth. The fact is that Joseph was not expecting any birth. He hadn't had any visiting angels, and thus it took literally an act of God to change his mind. And for the first time that we know, we are told that an angel finally appears to Joseph only after he puts divorce proceedings in place. Wouldn't it have just been simpler if Gabriel had let him in on the project? Well, I'm reading between the lines, but my guess is that the best way to give public vindication before the world that the seventh miraculous birth was about to happen is to let Joseph proceed on the impulses that everybody else would have done. Then and not until then would the angel intervene. The papers were filed. The court date was set. His intentions, and most importantly, his understanding of the facts of the matter, had to be entered into the record. It would be the reversal of his actions, so unexpected, so against procedure, that it would lend credibility to his new conviction, which Matthew now publishes for all the world to read. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Moreover, you, Joseph, will do something spectacular. 
you will not only embrace the child, you will have the audacity to name him Yeshua. Which means Joshua, which means Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. He's the seventh deliverer. Spectacularly conceived. Miraculously born. In one stroke, Joseph has been taken from doubt about his wife to confirmation of her purity. But Joseph has been taken further. He's found himself caught up as a primary actor on the stage of redemptive history, taking his place next to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Manoah, Elkanah, Zechariah. Fathers all who lived with women who could not bear and were miraculously touched. But of all of these, Joseph is the greatest. He is the adoptive father of the Son of God Himself to whom all of the others point. It is almost as though the word of the angel is not enough. Matthew puts Joseph into full context of the people of God and citing the prophet, he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So now the story falls together more clearly. From that moment, Joseph knew. He went to work each day in the carpentry shop making cabinets or shelves or tables or chairs. He thought about that baby. He thought about that baby's mother. And when the decree went out that all the world should be taxed, Mary was already with child. And when the journey began, Joseph knew that his donkey was bearing the God-bearer the woman in whose womb was the Holy Son of God. Now there's one more miracle that we must consider. And the miracle comes to us from John's Gospel where he gives us this astonishing news which comes by the same mighty power which conceived the Lord Jesus. To all of those who believed on his name, he gave them also power to become sons of God. That's the final great miracle. That you and I can, by the power of the Holy Ghost, be reborn into the family of God. Amen. You've been listening to For All the Saints, a ministry of All Saints Church. If you would like to learn more about the Christian life in the Anglican way, we invite you to join our community each Sunday at 9 a.m in the Marie McDonald Chapel on the campus of New Covenant Schools, located at 122 Fleetwood Drive in Lynchburg. Or you may visit us on the web at www.allsaintschurchlynchburg.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeremy Rowe.